What a blessing it is. We've arrived at this present hour on this Sunday morning, this first day of the week that has been given to us as an honor and privilege that we've been able to come together today in the worship and service of the God of heaven. We're so thankful for each and every person represented, thankful that things are with us as well as they are. And for the next few moments, may I encourage you to think with me about a lesson I've entitled, as you can see on the wall behind me. While we're making ready for that, let me at least make note of a couple of quick items, one of which is another reminder about that upcoming gospel meeting. Three weeks from today, that isn't very long, is it? But it will begin on the seventh day of May, and at that point, of course, Brother Glenn Colley will be with us, and he'll be bringing us lessons from the Word of God, challenging us, encouraging us, and certainly make sure to clear your calendar if at all you can, be with us, Make plans for Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and the array of services that will take place on Sunday as well. I might also mention, in addition to that, that keep on your calendar tonight at 5.30. Look forward to being with us. You may have already noted in the bulletin that we're going to give a thought tonight, at least for the sermon part of that lesson, about criticism. How do you give criticism to others according to the Word of God? How do you receive criticism from others also in light of the Word of God? So come back and be with us tonight as we study those topics together in which we find encouragement of what the Bible would have to say to each of us. What about another topic in our study of controversial items? You may remember that back in January we basically said before ourselves the thought that one Sunday of each month we would reflect upon some of the issues that have been controversial in light of the Lord's church. One by one, as we've looked at them, we've already arrived at the fourth installment in that series. You can already tell what it is. Male leadership in the church. Well, may I say, as we study that today, we will directly be using the Word of God to assist, to help, and to set our thinking in the way God would have it to be. I might say on this opening slide are some thoughts that will at least prompt us in the directions that we will follow. Baptism, the withdrawal of fellowship, mechanical instruments of music and worship. You get the idea. Those have been the first three of our studies so far in this series this year. But may I say it's all too often the case that the church will face controversial matters. Didn't Jesus pray in John 17 that although we are in this world, He prayed that we would not be of it? Now, He made that prayer with respect to those, of course, that were the apostles then. And by way of teaching and inspiration, it certainly is an encouragement to you and me as well. The church, of course, lives on the same planet with regard to the culture and society around us. And one of the features that we will face is the one before us in our study today. Why don't we approach it like this? There's a very clear societal motivation and a very clear societal push for equality in every way between males and females. I've listed just a few of the places in which you're apt to see it. In business, in the family, with regard to salary, in the nature of work, in fact, you may often see particular emphases in light of making a demand in every way for absolute equality between men and women. 
I think you and I'd be quick to say there's no cause for understanding approaches to this in any way other than the matters of the church and religious circumstances. And today, that'll be the source and the focus of our study. The second comment on that slide reminds us of the following. When it comes to leadership, when it comes to females occupying places of leadership, for instance, the CEO of a company, the main financial officer of a company, another person of great leadership status in a company or in the community, we have basically become accustomed to understanding that that happens and that there's nothing in any way that would prohibit or preclude some of the features of it. Isn't it true? We have states where there are women governors. There are women who serve on the Supreme Court. There are women who serve in various other places of high political stature. That's not our main concern today. Our main concern takes you to the comment at the bottom of that slide. I included it, and I'd like to read it. Gender justice means recognizing that men and women are created by God, redeemed by Christ, and gifted by the Spirit truly without distinction or partiality. In Christian community, gender justice means encouraging both men and women to exercise their Spirit-given gifts in the church the work, the worship, and the leadership of it, and celebrating the truth that the Spirit grants such gifts without respect to gender. That's taken verbatim from gal328.org, which is a website that not only encourages and promotes and endorses absolute equality in churches of Christ for both men and women, but it also makes not only an encouragement to it, but gives various guidelines by which it can be implemented. The next slide will list another quotation. This one is taken identically from the website of a church of Christ. It reads as follows. The two passages of Scripture most often referred to in this topic are found in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. We have concluded that we, meaning that congregation, we have concluded that these passages and those of a similar nature elsewhere are to be understood in the context of their communities. The writers of the New Testament had specific concerns when they wrote the epistles to those building the church, and where the circumstances are not replicated, the admonitions do not hold. I thought about emphasizing that. It goes on to say, Paul's word to the Galatians, we are all one in Christ, remains as the final word. It is with this spirit in mind that we have sought to use the gifts of all our community in our worship to God. When you look elsewhere on their website, you will discover that there are ladies that occupy the position of the preacher. Ladies are happily able to lead in public prayers in the assembly. Ladies, even in some instances, serve as elders in various of these congregations. I merely point that out to say that you can already see the basis by which many of their choices have been made. They basically made this, if I could paraphrase. They understand well their verses like the one Brother Cale read earlier in 1 Timothy 2. And there are verses such as the one in 1 Corinthians 14 
But they have concluded these were culturally related. They dealt with circumstances in those cities at that time, and they do not apply today, according to them. What you and I must do, quite frankly, must do. We must not merely take their word for this. We should be quick to say, if they are right, then we need to hold up their hands and encourage them, and we need to repent of what we've been doing wrong, and we need to welcome women in full consideration into the fullness of every aspect of the worship and service of the church. But if they are incorrect, and if the Word of God, as you and I shall study it today, leads to a different conclusion, then we need to never endorse that kind of thinking and encourage that way of doing matters in the Lord's church. You see, what we wish to do is simply this. What does the Bible say? What does the Word of God teach? What saith the Scripture? Paul's famous question of Romans 4 verse 3. I would support then for each of us to appreciate what about this matter that has become so controversial? The next slide will be one then that closes these introductory remarks by making reference to a survey. Now, I know oftentimes statistics can be used in ways that are more confusing than anything else. But I do think these statistics are at least worthwhile to note. In 2017, a survey was taken. Now, you notice that's only six years ago. 2017. The survey asked various questions, and these are just a synopsis, the summary, if you please. Eighty percent of Americans were quite comfortable with a female serving in the role of a pastor, as they called it. The next one is this. Sixty-seven percent of Christians felt completely comfortable with a female acting in the position as the pastor. The final observation is this one. A full 27% of congregations regarded in some ways Christian at that time had a female as, as the preacher. May I say to you that we're living in a time when the particulars of this discussion are not only needful, are not only significant, but it is a battle which the church is almost certain to face on a more regular basis in the years that lie ahead. Let's look at several verses of Scripture and let it dictate for us the way in which we will look upon this. I've chosen several of them. Now, one by one, as we look at these, what I would wish for you and me to do is to look at the fullness of what the text describes in comparison to the common issue that we're dealing with today in this subject and to simply allow the Bible by what it asserts to describe for us the situation. You might be somewhat shocked. Some of these occur in the Old Testament. Let's turn, if you would, to Numbers, the 16th chapter. In that place in the Old Testament, you and I recall, and I'll not read the fullness of that long chapter, but I will like to read verse number 3. It says, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. 
if I could transition with you back to that time, let me just describe a few of the matters that served as the background to a passage like the one we just read. The circumstance was this. The God of heaven had led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Moses had been the leader, and God had hand-selected him. You might recall that God also had selected Aaron to serve as Moses' spokesman, and Aaron was the one, you and I recall, that occupied the initial role as the high priest. Now, otherwise, you could appreciate that God had selected these two, Moses and Aaron, and they occupied this position of leadership among the children of Israel. Now, might we keep in mind, though, the children of Israel numbered a very large number. There were millions of them. You might even remember that Moses and Aaron had an older sister named Miriam. And she, in fact, also, of course, was of exactly the same bloodline. But it is significant. Miriam hadn't been selected as one of those leaders. Miriam had not been selected. That's going to end up being a bit of an issue at some point. But for the time being, you might note this. There was one particular person named Korah, and there were others of the children of Israel named Dathan and Abiram. Verse number 3, you and I had noted this. This group, it says, they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron. You may notice they had a different viewpoint. Moses and Aaron had led Israel in regard to a certain way, and these groups, this group led by Korah, they gathered themselves against them. And did you notice what they said? Ye take too much upon you. All of us are holy. Every one of us. Moses and Aaron, you guys, we thank you for what you've done. But all of us are able to serve in the capacity you're serving. There's nothing special, nothing particularly noteworthy about your occupation of that place. Any of us could do it. Sounds a little bit like some of the notion of consideration today, doesn't it? Could I ask you to contemplate with me how this scenario worked out? Did God, in essence, endorse what Korah and Dathan and Abiram had said? Were they commended and said, Okay, you can now be the priests. Korah, you can occupy the place that Moses had held without remembering all of the particulars by way of reading, could I point out the way this ended was this. God brought to an end the life of Korah. He brought to an end these rebels, and that is, by the way, the name that they were called. God referred to them as rebels. They weren't satisfied to submit to the thing that God had asserted by way of leadership, and they, in fact, lost their life because of it. The earth opened up, and swallowed them alive, and then the earth closed up upon them. Talk about a way to highlight God's verdict on this issue. Could I ask you to notice, merely as we close that brief discussion, the third point I invited you to note with me was this one. God had selected certain ones, in this case men, to occupy the role of those leaders. Again, it was Moses and Aaron. And he did not approve others. Now in Numbers chapter 12, just to revisit the brief comment I had made, Miriam ended up thinking that she was on an equal footing in that regard to both Aaron and Moses. 
And you might recall she was stricken with leprosy. And it was a brief period of time before which God removed that. But one more time, might we take note that God had organized and ordained the leaders that He had selected, and it was not His viewpoint that others could claim equality and that they would be accepted. Look at another one in 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse number 8. Here we've arrived all the way at the time of, the, of Saul as the first king of Israel. In a very interesting state of affairs, you might recall that God had ordained the priest to offer the particular sacrifices at the tabernacle. They had been the ones approved by God for that work. And wasn't it a delightful thing to consider? But here's the problem. Samuel was late. He didn't come when Samuel thought he should. So here was Saul waiting for battle against the Philistines. Samuel again had delayed. He didn't arrive when Saul wanted to offer the sacrifices. And so Saul took the liberty to offer them himself. Now you and I recall how that worked out. When Samuel recognized and learned what Saul had done, he painted a rather dramatic picture of God's judgment. And God judged Saul so harshly that he rent the kingdom from him. Saul's son never served as king. What you and I notice is one more time the following thing took place. God had selected ones to officiate in a particular way, and He did not tolerate others who took the liberty of trying to do the same. God punished Saul because of this, rending the kingdom from him. I might say we've looked at two examples, and both of which there have been those whom God ordained to officiate. And he did not look with lightness upon others who claimed the opportunity to do the same. What about number 3? This one takes us to Galatians 3 verse 28. Let's transition into the New Testament. As we look at several other passages, as we do this, may I point out this one is the singular passage which has been utilized to endorse the full equality in every way of men and women in service in terms of the worship and work of the church. This passage, you may remember, is the one that's chosen to give description to the website that I referenced earlier, gal328.org. That passage reads as follows. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There's certainly no argument as to the grandness of the message, the features that, in fact, it puts before us. I would invite you to note these comments. As I pointed out, this is the passage that's so often highlighted, and uniquely so in referencing the fact Look, men and women are the same. It's what it says, right? There is neither male nor female. I might ask you to consider the following. Is that what that passage teaches? For instance, consider this with me. It also says that there is neither bond nor free. So does that mean that there's no room for, in any case, one person to submit to another? 
Do we still have today those who are employers and those who are employees? Well, of course we do, and no one argues to that. Is it the case today that we have elements in society in which Christians submit to others as an employer versus employee or as student versus teacher? Do we have male and female teachers? Do we have those who are regarded in different places? I might point out that in other passages, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 directly told those that were slaves not to give that up. It seems as though we must be a bit cautious and not use the interpretation of this passage to go beyond that which Paul had in mind and that which the Holy Spirit had in mind. When it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, you and I recognize the gospel message is the same for one and all. There's not one gospel message for men versus another one for women. There's not one gospel message for Jews, whereas a different one for those that were Greeks. It's not as if there's one gospel message for those that are slaves versus a different one for those that were the masters. It was the same message. That unity, that unison, that togetherness was a rather remarkable thing, and truly, even to this day, it's fascinating. As different as the Jews and Greeks were, the God of heaven contrived a single message that was needful and required for each one of them. Isn't it true, there wasn't one congregation for those that had been Jews, and a different church for those who had been Greeks. That truth is one that would seem to me that is easily one that slips by us. I submit to you there was never at a time when there were two groups of people more different than Jews and Greeks. And yet God saw fit to put them in one church. One. One body. If ever you could have thought that there would be people who could say, but look, we need a different church than them. Surely the Gentiles could have claimed it because they didn't have the heritage the Jews had. They didn't have the historical essence the Jews had. They were the latecomers, the newcomers in the language of Matthew chapter 22. And yet the Lord put them in the exact same church. In fact, in Acts 15 verse number 9 it says, There's no distinction between us and them. The same plan of salvation the same church, the same deeds of work in that body were expected of each one. As you and I use that as a background, let's revisit Galatians 3.28. Neither male nor female. What Paul was teaching here, based on its context, would seem clearly to be a reference to the reality of membership in the body. He said nothing about offices which may be occupied in that body. Look back to again the verses that just precede this. Verses 26 and 27. For as many of you, male or female, doesn't matter, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Furthermore, you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So whether that person had been slave or master, whether that individual had been male or female, whether that individual had been Jew or Greek, the same gospel was presented at each instance, and each person had the opportunity of response. And you'll notice those that had responded in faith 
were accepted by the Heavenly Father. That lovely thought, again, has nothing to say about offices which may have been occupied in that realm. But what a lovely thought of equalness in light of the opportunity. It might well be in that membership. We might close the chapter, verse 29. And if you be Christ's, there's the key. You'll notice that being Christ's, it says you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is a promise reiterated and blessed in light of you and me today in light of a verse like verse number 29. So might we be quick to say that this verse doesn't seem to present before us the conclusion that many would assert upon it. What about the next one in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 16? That particular discussion is one that, again, is rather far-reaching. May I summarize without reading all of it in its fullness? There is a distinction to be made there between the genders. Now, please consider that in light of that text we just read in Galatians 3.28. There, Paul said, neither male nor female. But yet the same author in 1 Corinthians 11 talked about the reality of this. There is a distinction in behavior. Men ought not act like women and vice versa. And there's also a difference in the way that they dress. That is to say their appearance. Aren't we told in that same context, a man with long hair, it's a shameful thing. Doesn't even nature teach you that that thing is, is not a matter to be highly approved. But may I say, it went even beyond that. It allowed me to say this. That distinction that's highlighted, that difference that's noted there, is a passage in which that difference is put before us. May I say that this statement of Galatians 3.28 apparently didn't do away with that. Those who interpret Galatians 3.28 the way that they do they greatly err. They take those passages and use them in ways to contradict directly other passages of the Word of God. Those distinctions did remain. In Galatians 14.34, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14.34, we read a passage that, that, that reads like this. 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 34, Let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. I suspect that there are those who would read that and perhaps find insult in it. Women can't speak. If they learn anything, they've got to ask their husband at home. There are several things that might be asked about this. What would a woman do if she's not married? She doesn't have a husband at home. Who is she to ask? If we take this and simply use it directly apart from its context, we might find ourselves in a bit of a challenge, in a place that could put a position of great difficulty. What we know is in its context, it tells us this. In the days in which the spiritual gifts were active, those miraculous spiritual gifts, there were those equipped with the spirit of prophecy. 
we find that there were women, and these apparently were the wives of those gifted with that gift of prophecy. And they would interrupt their husbands while in the midst of prophecy and perhaps desire more information. They often, in the interruption, would do things in a way that brought confusion. And in response, Paul said, they need to ask him at home if they have questions like that. Let him complete the prophecy for the better edification and benefit of the assembled congregation and take care of matters in that way. Now, much more might be said about that for sure. But at the very least, could we note this? We find a circumstance, as you close that slide, in which Paul made this statement. I just read it, but may I emphasize it? The end of verse number 34, as also saith the law. What Paul was basing this on was not culture. May we each hear it well. It was not based on culture. The circumstances that led Paul, by inspiration, to conclude what he did were not culturally related to Corinth. It was far larger than that. And thus, any place you would anticipate a similar consideration relative to what ultimately was presented. And I say all of that to say this. The sixth and final and clearest one is this one. I know Cale read it earlier, but may we read it again. Would you please be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our goal, our delight, our joy is merely to ask, what did the Word of God say? Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And that's what Paul wrote. Now he wrote that to Timothy, admittedly. And Timothy was laboring in the area of Ephesus. And yet to that congregation, Paul had these words to say. You and I know what approach has been taken. There are those who would say, that was cultural. It does not apply today. Might you and I re-ask it this way. In verses 13 and 14, did Paul connect this to a cultural conclusion? Did he say, because Ephesus has this viewpoint, these are the instructions I would give? Because Ephesus has a legacy, a background, a history this way, these are the instructions that I would give. The answer is overwhelmingly no. The two reasons that Paul gave as anchoring this truth about a woman learning in silence, about a woman not usurping authority over the man, the two reasons he gave had nothing to do with Ephesus, it had nothing to do with the first century. It had nothing to do with culture. These are the way he described it. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. The basis for this goes back to the creation. God made Adam first. He made the woman second. But not only that, it says that Adam was not deceived in the original transgression, but the woman was. 
Those two things have nothing to do with culture. They go all the way back to both the creation and to the scene in the Garden of Eden. What happened in light of the choices, the disposition that Adam and Eve took? Among the things we can easily say is this. Whether it be Corinth, whether it be Ephesus, whether it be Cookville, Tennessee, in the year 2023, the truths that were presented in these passages are those which God expected to remain because they aren't anchored in culture. It would be true that if they were connected to culture, they would be in a position whereby things might appreciate changes in them. By the way, wasn't that true in 1 Corinthians 11? Consider the covering on the head. Most of the time today, here in America at least, women don't come to services with coverings on their head. Shall I say external coverings besides the hair? And yet, that was something described in the context of 1 Corinthians 11. But you and I notice in verse 16 of that chapter, it was said to be cultural. And therefore, we anticipate that that would not be a demand for us today apart from that culture. But this one is not cultural. As you and I close that slide, we note that the text that Paul has put before us has led me to say this. Let's conclude our lesson in this way. You and I know that God looks with great favor upon every person. He made us all. He loves women just every bit as much as men. They are honored, they're valued just as much as men. There is work that they are expected to do just as though there's work for men, but for the occupation of the offices in the church. God has specified that that is to be male leadership. Again, woman not to usurp authority over the man. That's why when it comes to the services of the church, we lift high the banner of the men leading the public prayers. That's what's described in 1 Timothy 2 verse 8. The men who are the ones delivering the lessons because under the banner of Titus 2 1, that carries authority. May a woman teach children? Absolutely. They're not men. May a woman teach a class of ladies? Absolutely, they're not men. There's no principle in the, in the passages of the Word of God that would offer challenge or difficulty in that. What we would be quick to say is this. Any man who teaches and is worth his salt will highly regard the suggestion and the opinion of his wife or other women who might help him be a better teacher because her opinion is not to be overlooked. Her perspective is not to be downgraded. She often has great wisdom that she can share, and he can incorporate that in improving his teaching, in improving his presentation and his delivery. That would be the very least one can say. Isn't it true, as you and I close this lesson today, that male leadership is thus something the Word of God teaches and sets before us? And it doesn't matter what society may teach, what culture may in fact set before us. It doesn't change the Word of God. As you and I close this lesson today, we always would wish to offer the Lord's invitation. That is to say, God loves one and all, and He wants all to be faithful Christians in His service. If there's a person in our assembly today that's never become a Christian, and you would wish to do so, the God of heaven loves you. 
He cherishes you and wants for you eternal glory and well-being. We would like to offer this opportunity that if you would wish to respond to that invitation of the Lord, won't you believe in Him? Won't you repent of your sins? Won't you confess His matchless name as a Son of God and be baptized? If you have begun that Christian walk and you have strayed from it, you've begun to live in a way that's not consistent with the Word of God, God hasn't given up on you. Won't you come back to your first love, honor Him, cherish Him, desire to serve Him. And today, we'd be honored to help you, to encourage you, to wrap arms of love and support around you. You must repent of your sins, though, and you must make confession of them under the banner of 1 John 1, and we'd be honored to help and encourage in any way that we can. Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement, and at this time, if you would wish to come, please do so while we stand and sing.